When I was growing up, we vacationed a lot in the mountains in North Carolina, in Tennessee. Later, we vacationed in the mountains of Georgia, not quite as high. But we would drive up from Miami every, every summer. And when I was growing up, when, when you went on vacation like that, it meant that you spent a lot of time in the car. So it was about a 16-hour drive each way from Miami up to the mountains. And nowadays, when you spend that kind of time in a car, there are things you can do when you're in the car. Nowadays, there is a nearly inexhaustible supply of games for our smartphones, for example, like lots of things to keep your attention. And then there are handheld gaming platforms, you know, the Switch that, that my kids love, and so you have that, and of course, you can watch stuff on your phone. You can watch Netflix, you can watch Hulu, you can watch HBO Max, you can watch Apple TV, you can watch Disney Plus. You're even allowed to download those things. So if you don't have cell coverage, you can still watch those movies. There's so much stuff that you can watch. But back in the day, as the kids like to say, back in the day, which always makes me laugh when kids say back in the day, back in the day in the early 2000s, you mean when I bought this belt back in the day? Yeah, okay. Well, back in the day, things were different. Because for us in the car, there were only about five things to do on a long road trip. You might relate to this if you're of my vintage. We could play silly games like punch buggy. Remember that? And for those of you who don't know, it's whenever you see a Volkswagen bug or a beetle, you got to punch the person sitting next to you if you noticed it first. So that was fun. A lot of, a lot of the games have to do with violence now that I think about it. <laughs> anyway, we, we do punch buggy, we do cow bingo. Did you ever do cow bingo? There's a brown one, there's a black one, there's a spotted one, you fill out your bingo card. We used to do find the license plate, right? There's a New York plate, there's a New York plate, there's a New York plate, there's a New Jersey plate, there's a New York plate. There's a Canada plate, there's a New York plate, right, like that. We used to play I Spy. Remember that one? I Spy with my little eye, something that's green, you know, all the grass, whatever. Or we could have an old-fashioned sing-along. 99 bottles, anybody? Yeah, if you really wanted to irritate your parents in the front seat, you could sing 99 bottles. We could read, or we could sleep, or we could fight with our siblings. That was a fun one. I have two brothers. Or we could sit quietly and stare out the window like this. <laughs> and actually, learning the skill of being quiet and staring was a very important life skill that you would use all the time when I was growing up. We had to use that skill a lot. We did it at family gatherings. We weren't in, really interested in entertaining the kids when you're visiting elderly relatives or you're visiting somebody in the hospital, so you just kind of got to sit there and stare. And then on the rare occasions when we would fly somewhere, we'd fly up to New York or fly up to Chicago, fly somewhere like that to attend a family event, more staring. Maybe you read the in-flight magazine for a second you read the information card about the airplane. You read the back of the barf bag. That was pretty much it. You just stared. Much of our childhood was spent being quiet 
and staring. It was exciting. It was a better time. You know this statement, children should be seen and not heard. This was the motto of my childhood. And it wasn't used ironically. It was used axiomatically. It was never, ever questioned as a theory of parenting. Children should be seen and not heard. Now, I don't think a lot of young people today would relate to that, you know? I have lots of teacher friends. My mom's a retired teacher. And they're like, you're not going to believe what it's like. We can't discipline the kids because the parents take the kids' side, not our side. Back in our day, I remember I had to go to the principal's office. My mom was sitting there waiting for me at the principal's office. When the principal was scolding, Miss Silver was her name, Barbara Silver. My mom just sat here like this. Yeah, give it to him, you know? My mom, she worked at my school. It's not as weird as that sounds. But anyway, but I don't think young people can relate to that these days. And I even had to dig back pretty deep into the recesses of my brain that I had sort of shut off and siloed away. But I had to dig back to remember those moments of boredom. We don't have that anymore. Today, we, we don't have those quiet spaces that we used to have. When we're waiting for a doctor to see us, or we're waiting for some kind of appointment, when we're in line at the grocery store, in line at Publix, when we're sitting at the red light, when we're in line waiting for our half-calf, non-fat, double-whipped, ice-venti mocha frappuccino, we pull out our phones, don't we? We look at our phones, we look at the news, read our email, we follow up on our texts, we scroll through Instagram, we scroll through TikTok, we look at YouTube videos, And while I'm not suggesting that I want to go back to the way that the world was, it was a boring world, but I am starting to recognize that the world of today, the world of no silence, and the world of no downtime, and the world of no peace is not a healthy way to live either. And based upon the conversations that I've had, and I try to spend as much time as I can talking to as many people as possible. I feel like everybody's right there with me. Everybody's feeling it. Even if we don't know why we're feeling it, we're all feeling it. So here's a question. Does God have a solution for us? Hmm. You know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah, we'll get there. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for allowing us to draw into this place as your people, as your ecclesia, as your called-out community. Thank you for giving us this curiosity, for drawing us in so that we can learn more about you. So God, as we go on this morning, as we talk about it, as we see what you've said in, in your word in the Bible, we ask that you would use your words to change our hearts and minds and to draw us closer to you. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in our third and final week of the series called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Our series comes from this same book of the same name by a pastor named John Mark Comer who lives out in Oregon. And we're talking about this stuff now because it is the holiday season. The holiday season is upon us. And the holiday season always means the hurry season. 
When the calendar hit November 1st, and it's so weird, it just keeps getting earlier and earlier and earlier, but when the calendar hit November 1st, our usual hurried lives kicks into a, as my southern friends like to say, a whole nother gear. This time of year makes us feel like the world is going even faster and that it's sped up way beyond our control. And I don't know about you guys, but this time of year, my stress level doubles. My eye has been twitching since midnight on November 1st. I don't think it's going to stop. And it's not healthy to have this kind of stress. Well, last week we began talking about the solution to our hurry problem. And we saw that the way God's made us, the way God has designed us, and the way God modeled it for us, and the way God has even commanded us to live is to live at a much healthier pace than the pace we're living at. Well, this week, I wanted to look at how we're going to get started on the road to reclaiming our lives and reclaiming our sanity by mastering the four practices for unhurrying your life. And before we get started, a little bit of a heads up. Of the four practices, we're going to spend more time on the first two practices, and we're going to move more quickly through the remaining two practices, because as you're going to see, those practices are a lot more flexible. And if you read the book, you'll see he gets real specific in what those practices are, but that's what they would look like for him. Kind of a young guy, he lives in Portland, Oregon, it's kind of a different culture, he's a different person. So for us, we're going to need some flexibility. You'll, you'll see what I mean as we get going. But anyway, let's kick off. This month, I celebrated my spiritual birthday, my 29th birthday as a believer in Jesus. I be, that, that's gotta come. Shout out for God, right? I became a follower of Jesus on November the 9th, 1993. If you don't remember the day that you became a follower of Jesus, that's totally okay. That's just what I did. But on that day, sitting in my windowless office on the fifth floor of an office in Phillips Point in West Palm Beach, I went to God and I told him, God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I need a savior. God, I now understand that out of your love for me, You sent your son Jesus as that savior. So God, I now turn from my sin. That's called repentance when you turn from something. I turn to Jesus who paid the penalty for my sin with his life on that cross and then was entombed but came back from the dead to return to you, promising one day to come back to earth to usher in your kingdom on earth. And God, from this day forward, I'll follow Jesus, and I will devote my life to him. So I made that pledge 29 years ago. And as I reflected upon that day, I realized that when I committed my life to Jesus 29 years ago, I had a lot of opportunities to spend time with him. I mean, back in those days, I was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to make my 45-minute commute from here to West Palm Beach, which is where I worked. I had to get there by 6.30, so... At that time of morning, it only took 45 minutes. Now, if you go at rush hour, it takes a lot longer. But while I was in my car, oftentimes I got to see the sunrise, and I got to marvel at God's majesty. And then I was able to spend that time talking to God as as a friend and as my beloved Heavenly Father. That was a really special time for me, driving in the quiet on I-95. And then at lunchtime, I got a nice lunch break. I was able to connect with God. I was able to leave the office and take a run 
I would run from Phillips Point over the bridge to Palm Beach and back. I would go to my gym downtown. I had plenty of time, quiet time to talk to God. And then on my way back home on an empty I-95, because I didn't come home until after 10.30 at night, there again, I had just nothing but quiet to talk to God, to be with God. And then I would go to bed, and I'd go to bed with a prayer on my lips. And that happened every day of the week. And then on the weekends, on Saturday, I'd get up in the morning, and I'd drive out to the end of Palmetto Park and sit at the beach so I could experience some quiet time there and look at God's majesty and look at the ocean. We're so close to the ocean. Even if you live out west, you're really close to the ocean compared to the rest of the world. And of course, on Sundays, I got to spend time with my church family. And I used those little moments as sort of portals to prayer. Those were such great moments for praying. And those little moments kept me constantly aware of God's presence all around me. It's really funny. Sometimes we say when we come to church, we come into God's presence, but we don't actually. We're always in God's presence. Just when we come into church, sometimes we realize it. And so when you take those moments, you can realize it as well. But nowadays, those moments are really tough to find. And we talked about it last week, since the advent of the digital revolution in 2007, most of us, and certainly I, have gotten into another habit. And I've gotten into the habit of filling all those quiet moments with noise. When I drive to work, it's podcasts. When I work out, it's music. Some of you will notice I always carry my earbuds on my belt like a police officer, like a weird police officer carrying, you know, headphones or something. Always listening to me. I always, always, always have them in my ears. When I come to a red light, yeah, I look at Instagram or I check my texts. I don't text and drive. I encourage everybody, please don't text and drive. It's very, very dangerous and it's illegal. Don't do it. Somebody was doing it on my way to work this morning, car in front of me, and I was like, ah. When I'm in a waiting room now, I check the weather or I read the headlines. I'm always doing something on my phone. And suffice to say, along the way, I've unknowingly abandoned nearly all of my quiet moments with God. And looking at the studies, I'm not alone. Comer in the book mentioned a survey done by Microsoft that found that 77% of young adults answered yes when asked, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. That's what we do. When we're bored, we just reach for our phone. That phone, man, it's incredible. Can you relate to that? Do you do the same? Now, these practices have profound implications for our apprenticeship to Jesus. That's what we're called to be, Jesus' disciples, Jesus' apprentices. And when we're not spending time with Jesus, we have a hard time being his disciples. And When we do that, it also kind of takes away from being able to live the life that Jesus has to offer us. That new normal that we have of hurried digital distraction is robbing us of the ability to be present. It robs us of the ability to be present to God. It robs us of the ability to be present to other people. It robs us of the ability to be present to all that is good, beautiful, and true in our world. And it even robs us of the ability to be present in our own souls. And it gets worse from there. The noise of our world drowns out the one input that we need the most. It drowns out the voice of God. So, the question that we'll ask first this morning is, 
is there a practice from the way of Jesus that could help us with this problem? And the answer, of course, is yes. You knew the answer was yes, right? Because otherwise I could just pray and go home. But Comer looked at four of these practices, and he started with the most important of the practices, and that's the practice of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude were a central part of Jesus' life and a central part of Jesus' connection to the Father. So let's look at a little bit of scripture. At the end of Matthew's gospel, or at the end of the third chapter of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3, Right after Jesus comes out of the water. So remember the story? John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Jesus is coming out of the water. And a voice from heaven says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then in the very next verse, which takes us to the next next chapter, but don't forget, the chapters are kind of added way later, just so we can navigate our way through the scripture. So this is like the next sentence that comes up. The very next chapter is Matthew 4, verse 1. The Spirit of Jesus was led, or Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry and the tempter came to him. So the very first thing Jesus did after he was baptized was go right into the desert. And Comer does a great job here explaining the significance of the passage. The Greek word for desert that is used, remember the New Testament is written in Greek, so the Greek word used for desert is the word eremos. And now eremos does indeed refer to what we think of as a desert, sort of a hot sandy place, but eremos means a few other things. Eremos can also mean a deserted place, a solitary place, a quiet place, or a wilderness. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often refer to time spent in the Eremos. So here's one example, and you've probably heard this story before, but you probably didn't stop and consider just how strange this story is. And that's one of the things we really like to do, is when we read the scripture, I like to stop and go, huh, that's weird. Like, that's not how we think. We don't use those words, so this is really interesting. So... Immediately after Jesus' public introduction, that's what the baptism was. Jesus kind of comes out of, the, out of the woodwork and he introduces himself to the public. So right after he introduces himself to the public, Jesus heads off to isolate and starve himself in preparation for a battle with the devil. And Comer mentions it, and I absolutely agree. I always thought this story was a picture of how the devil is going to come after us when we're at our weakest when we haven't slept and we haven't eaten and we're all isolated, like Jesus must have been. I mean, he's in the desert for 40 days. He didn't eat. I mean, he must have been so weak. But what if we looked at that story differently? What if Jesus' time in the wilderness did not weaken him? What if it strengthened him? What if after spending 40 days, a little over a month, praying and fasting in the quiet place, in the Eremos, what if Jesus was at the height of his strength, after all that time? What if, because of that time, he was able to easily vanquish the devil and kick off his earthly ministry? And that actually makes so much more sense, especially given the fact that Jesus keeps going back to the Eremos. He keeps going back to the quiet place. He keeps going back 
to that desert time and time again. The Eremos, the quiet place, was where Jesus gathered his strength. This is really cool. In Mark's gospel, we see again Jesus, this time after his first public day on the job as the Messiah, giving up a good night's rest. In other words, he works well into the night. He doesn't get enough sleep. But he gives up his full night's rest to what? Very early in the morning, Mark 1. While it was still dark, he went off to a solitary place, Eremos in the Greek, where he prayed. So Jesus did his Messiah job for one day and then went to the quiet place for 40 days. He was a millennial, apparently. And so, kidding millennials, it's okay. No? Okay. So he went to the quiet place for 40 days after one day on the job. And then he goes back to the quiet place to pray. This means that the Eremos was not a one-off. He didn't just go to the Eremos the one time to fight the devil. It was an integral part of the rhythm and the flow of Jesus' life with God, the Father. But it gets even more interesting because while Jesus was away, the disciples are searching around everywhere. They're looking for him. He's away praying in the Eremos. He's gone somewhere. And look what Mark 137 says. And when they found him, they're looking around for him. And they exclaim, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. They're like, hey, boss, you're trending. Come on, let's give the people what they want. You've got to strike while the iron's hot. This is your moment. But Jesus was not interested in any kudos for his performance before. He came out of the quiet place ready to move on to the next challenge, ready to move on to the next thing. So instead of going back with them where they wanted him to go, where they were trying to bring him, here's what he said in the next verse. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else. I don't want to go back to those people who want to see me again. I want to go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. See, that quiet place was central to Jesus' life. Another one in Mark chapter 6 When because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. When they were so busy doing ministry that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves where? To the quiet place. We don't have a chance to eat. We're so busy. We're running around. Let's take a moment. Let's go to the quiet place. Let's go to the Eremos and get some rest. And it's interesting, here they weren't actually able to settle into the quiet place, into the Eremos, to get that moment of rest that Jesus suggested because the crowds ran ahead of them to meet them there. So the crowds knew what was going on. This is a phenomenon. Everybody's running around trying to get ahead, trying to listen to Jesus. So Jesus kept on working. He was teaching the lost. He was feeding thousands of hungry people. Remember that? He fed thousands of hungry people from the meager lunch of a little boy who had some peasants' bread and some fish, some preserved fish. When the work was done, Jesus dismissed the crowds, and then what did he do? Mark 6, 46, after leaving them, he went alone. He got alone. He went up on a mountainside to pray. Are you beginning to see the pattern here? He keeps getting himself alone after because Jesus needed his silence and solitude. So if Jesus needed his silence and solitude, don't you think we need it even more? Now a few words on how to get there. The first thing I want to talk about is silence. Let's just focus on the word silence. Now when we think silence, we need to think silence. Nothing but quiet. The kind of still silence to which 
the sons of Korah referred when singing about how God would reveal himself to them. Remember when they said this, you'll know the verse, be still and know that I am God. Silence, the kind of silence referred to by Augustine when he said, entering silence is entering into joy. So we need to learn to schedule a time of silence into our day every single day. In fact, I want to take a moment to help you get started doing that. So right now, I want you to feel it. I want you to feel what complete silence actually feels like. Are you ready? Complete silence. That was 60 seconds. Did that not feel like an hour and a half? One minute of complete silence. Is that powerful or what? It's not easy to do that, though. It is not easy to accomplish that in our world. As C.S. Lewis pointed out in his masterpiece, The Screwtape Letters, which if you haven't read it, please read The Screwtape Letters. It's one of the best reads you'll ever read. Lewis calls the devil's realm a kingdom of noise. And it's the devil's plan, Lewis said, to make the whole universe a noise in the end. How real was that? Man, oh man, he wrote that thing 70 years ago. And here we are. The universe is a complete noise. But external noise is not the only noise we need to squelch as we seek after God There's also internal noise. We all have internal noise in our head. We all have this inner voice or inner dialogue that kind of runs in a loop over and over, plays inside our heads over and over. That internal dialogue is the sound of our insecurities or our fantasies or our guilt over our sins or our rage over our failures or our unrealized victories. We just have this loop that goes on and on. And as we seek silence in order to connect with God, we need to silence the inner voice as well. Now, in addition to silence, we need to adopt the practice of solitude. Now, solitude is a pretty straightforward concept. Solitude exists when we're alone with ourselves and we're alone with God. But don't get solitude confused with isolation. Comer said that solitude is engagement, but isolation is escape. Solitude is safety, but isolation is danger. Solitude opens you up to God. 
but isolation paints a target on your back for the tempter. So what is solitude? Solitude is when you set aside a time to feed and water and nourish your soul. So we need to purposefully create an environment. We have to be on top of this for attention and connection to God. And there is no better way of doing that than following Jesus' example of habitually bringing ourselves to that eremos, to that quiet place. So silence and solitude with God over time result in a very strong relationship. So find your quiet places. You can go to the beach. You can go out to the Everglades. You can go to a park. You can even go to a quiet window in the corner of your house. You can take a walk, ride your bike, go for a run. There are quiet places everywhere. And all it takes is for you to do it. Just get started. It's easy to find a quiet place and start. Just go somewhere quiet. I think I'm beginning to understand why my mom's favorite thing to say when we were kids, I had two brothers, was shh. She actually figured out a way to make money at that. My mom was a librarian, so... When you get into this habit, your relationship with God will grow by leaps and bounds. You will be amazed. All right, moving on. I want to start this section with a confession. I like the part about silence and solitude. Something I love, something I've had success with, it resonated with me. I can feel my need for silence and solitude. But I cannot feel anything like it when it comes to this next practice because I'm a busy person. I am a type A person. I am a multitasker. I have two settings, full speed ahead or sound asleep. I don't have a medium setting and I certainly don't have an off switch. When I was lawyering, that fit the way that I'm wired. Because practicing law lends itself to that. When you're practicing law, your work is almost never done. There's always something more you can be doing, studying more, reading more, researching more, finding more evidence, coming up with more arguments. There's always more to do. And in our world, there is always more to strive for as well. More money, more fun, more stuff, more travel, more toys, more, more, more. And as a result, I was convinced that more is where life is at. It's all about more. And Comer points out that our desire for more can get the better of us because as human beings, our soul is never satisfied. Because the truth is, human desire is infinite. The problem is we're not infinite. We're not infinite. We're finite. We have our limits. And finite people with infinite desires become restless people. So we go through life suffering from chronically unsatisfied desires. And this makes the question for us as apprentices of Jesus, well, what do we do with all this unsatisfied desire? What do we do with all this restlessness? The Bible teaches that human desire is infinite because we were not made for this world. We were made to live with God forever in his world. And nothing less will ever satisfy us. So we have this desire to always be striving, 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 because we're made for another place. 
And as a result, our only hope is to put desire back in its proper place on God and to put all our other desires in their proper place below God. We're supposed to reorder the way we live. God is our number one desire and everything else takes a back seat. Now, we're not called to detach from all desire. We're not Buddhists. But we're called to come to the place where we no longer need to have everything we desire to live a happy and restful life. Professor Dallas Willard, and that's for you, Heath, said it like this. Desire is infinite partly because we were made by God. We were made for God. We were made to need God and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. Willard's saying this, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. We should know that. Many of us might know it in our head, but we continue to chase after our, our desires. We continue to do so all the time, ad infinitum, to infinity, leading us to a chronic state of what? Restlessness, angst, anger, anxiety, disillusionment, and maybe even depression. All of us, all of which lead us to a life of hurry and busyness and overload and shopping and materialism and careerism and those things don't satisfy. They make us even more restless. And so the cycle continues. And then social media comes along and throws gasoline on this already raging fire. And as we scroll through the carefully curated and carefully filtered and carefully presented greatest hits of the lives of the rich and famous, and the greatest hits of the lives of our friends and our acquaintances, we find ourselves dragged into committing a deadly sin that traces its roots all the way back to the garden. The greed for another person's life. The covetousness. And when we covet, it results in the loss of gratitude and joy and contentment in the life that we have. When our innate human restlessness collides with that digital age, the result is a culture-wide crisis of emotional unhealth and spiritual death. Doesn't that sound horrible? So here's the question again. Is there a practice of Jesus that will mitigate this restlessness and bring us back into the rest for our souls that Jesus promised? And the answer is, of course, yes. The practice of the Sabbath. This is interesting. The English word for Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. Shabbat means literally to stop. Stop. I don't have a simmer setting, let alone a stop setting. But Sabbath is a full stop. Sabbath is a day to stop working. But it's also a day to stop wanting and to stop worrying. It's a day to stop. We're designed to take one day out of seven to just stop. But as Comer points out, Sabbath is an integral part of the life of the Jesus follower. Sabbath is a way of being in the world. Sabbath is a spirit of restfulness that comes from abiding, from living in the Father's presence all week long. Do you struggle with this? 
I struggle like crazy with this. I think it's safe to say we all do to some extent. And that's why when speaking on the Sabbath, the writer of Hebrews said this, let us therefore make every effort to enter into the Sabbath rest. Think about how weird that sounds. The writer of Hebrews told us to work harder to rest. Isn't that weird? Work hard so you can rest. Practicing Sabbath takes a lot of work, takes a lot of planning, takes a lot of discipline. Practicing Sabbath doesn't just happen. When your Sabbath is comprised of running around doing errands, you're just working. You're just working for another boss. Sabbath doesn't just happen. It takes control and discipline, and it takes control and discipline to say no to a lot of things that are really good. Come to this party, go to this place, buy this thing. It requires us to say no to a lot of good things so we can say yes to the very best thing, the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath prepares us to be able to fully live out the things that matter most in life. And throughout the Gospels, you will see Jesus practice the Sabbath. In Mark's Gospel, we see one of the stories, tell it to you quick, one Saturday, Jesus and the disciples are walking through the grain fields, and they pluck the heads off a few of the plants, enjoy a little snack while they're walking through. They didn't have power bars yet, so much easier. And the Pharisees heard of this. Remember, they're always trying to get Jesus, catch him on a technicality, and they went after Jesus, and they were irritated that in their view, he violated the Sabbath by eating on the Sabbath. And Jesus, in a loving way, delivered to them a very gentle but very firm rebuke. Here's what he said. You guys got it all wrong. The Sabbath was made for man. This is for us. This is not a rule against us. This is for us, not man, for the Sabbath. And though the Pharisees were outraged because their legalistic hearts could only think, how dare he violate God's law, Jesus meant it as a salve spoken in love. I'm trying to help you guys. This law is for you. This law is for your benefit. God gave you this law because he loves you and he wants the best for you at all times. Well, today is the complete opposite. We're not legalistic about the Sabbath because we didn't even think about the Sabbath. It's not even considered. Comer noted it this way. He said, a day off? Sure. Sunday worship? Of course, uh, when I can find the time. But Sabbath? What does that even mean? Our culture has no idea what Sabbath is all about. We've lost the notion of just sitting with God and simply enjoying him and all the blessings he's given us, taking one day a week to do that. But Sabbath is a gift to enjoy, given to us by the creator. Genesis 2, verse 2, we read, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And what did he do next? He blessed the seventh day. He made the seventh day special. He made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God took a break. Shouldn't we take the hint that we need to take a rest too? And there's even more. Shabbat not only means stop, but it can also mean to delight. Christian therapist Dan Allender said, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. The Sabbath is for us. 
And it's God's way of filling our souls back up with life every week. All right, so that was the first two. We're going to move on a little quicker pace from here because the next practices that we're going to take a look at are universally wise, but they need to be implemented in ways that are kind of specific to each one of us. So we'll go through these a bit quicker. With that in mind, here we go. Simplicity. The practice of, of the Sabbath is kind of the toughest thing for us in the West to do. But the practice of simplicity, I think, is the toughest thing for us in the West to buy into. You got to buy into this. And to that end, Jesus said a bunch of things that we know, but they're also things that we can barely understand how to implement given what our life actually looks like. So for instance, Jesus said this in Luke's gospel in chapter 12. Be, he said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he said a little bit later, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And, and we look at these things, and in our brains we go, of course we understand. We shouldn't be greedy. Got it. Nobody likes a greedy person. And we go, of course we know that we should give some of what God's given us to the poor. We love to give, and we do. We really do love to give. But when we get to the next step, and we ask ourselves, what would following Jesus in, the, in these areas look like in our lives? And, and how can we do them, given the fact that we need certain things to live in the modern world? Chief among them being money and the necessities that sustain us. We need food. We need clothing. We need shelter. We need reliable transportation. We need certain things. Things on Amazon you must have if you want to have a happy life. To that end, Comer said something to the effect of, we shouldn't be asking ourselves, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We should be asking ourselves, what would Jesus do if he were me? So with that direction in mind, let's look at a few ways that we can simplify our lives and eliminate hurt. Now, Comer pointed out that money can get in the way of our living more simply, and that is so true. But it's a jarring concept to us in America. Because America, we are the world's largest consumer. We buy more stuff as Americans than anybody else in the world. Comer actually identified the gospel of America as the promise, the more you have, the happier you will be. And it is fair to say that to one degree or another, we all believe this to be true, myself absolutely included. We are thoroughly conditioned from the moment we're born to be voracious consumers. But we're not entirely to blame. Over the last century, a very short period of time compared to all of human history, America has moved from mostly a rural an agrarian society to a mostly urban, suburban, and industrial society. And Comer goes into great detail in the book about how the shift took place, but suffice it to say, we have all been convinced by advertisers, now by marketers, by public relations people, we've been convinced that we should not be content with what we have, but that we should always be looking for the next thing that will make our lives even better. I have an, I, I, an Apple Watch first generation, Yesterday, I looked at the brand new one, which is like up to generation eight. Do I need that? Do I need that? We've been convinced as a people that our wants are really our needs, and we shop accordingly. But Jesus and the writers of the New Testament quite succinctly pointed out that our actual needs can be reduced to just a few things, food and clothing. And Comer adds to this the need for shelter, which I think is correct. He lives in a cold and wet place, and Jesus lived in kind of a dry, more temperate place. But then Comer asked this question, 
What if the only material things we need to live rich and satisfying lives are food to eat, clothing on our backs, and a place to live? The social scientist Abraham Maslow called them his hierarchy of needs and essentially said the same thing. So what did Jesus and the New Testament writers say about money and possessions? They said a lot about it, actually. There are over 2,350 references to money in the Bible. And they all come down to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he said. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Comer explains this passage really well. In sum, what he says is don't invest all of your time, energy, and money in things that don't really matter and don't really last. Put your life into things that matter, like your relationship with God and life in his kingdom. Because where you put your resources is where you put your heart. And then Jesus said this. This is really cool what he did with this. Watch this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Comer provides excellent background here because think about it. When we read this, when you've read this today just now or when you have read it before, did you think to yourself, hmm, I, lamp, okay, got it. Healthy equals light, excellent. Unhealthy then equals dark. Okay, got it. Generally understand that? Good, moving on. But I want to show you what it actually means. This is cool. Here Jesus was referring to a common first century idiom. See, if you did not know that, you won't understand this. I did not know that, and I didn't understand this. But here's the idiom. When a person was said to have a healthy eye, it meant that that person was focused and intentional in their lives and that that person was very aware of the plight of the poor around them and was generous in dealing with them. In contrast, when a person had an unhealthy eye, or the King James Version writes it as an evil eye, which you've heard, That meant the opposite. That meant that when a person looked at the world, all they could see was the flashy stuff and the attention-grabbing stuff, not what really mattered. So they closed their eyes to those people in need. So based on that, look what Jesus says next. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't live the way of Jesus and get sucked into overconsumption that's normal for our society. You have to choose. And then Jesus concluded the same point by connecting money and stuff to worry. This is all in the same few verses consecutively. Verse 25, therefore, remember when you see a therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Jesus' point We worry about what we worship. And if we're worshiping money, that's what we'll worry about, and that worry will eat us alive. But we can break that chain by simplifying our lives. Comer goes on to list a bunch of ways that he chose to simplify his life. Get the book if you want. You can read them. But here are the main takeaways. In order to eliminate hurry from our lives, we need more simplicity. We need to go through life with healthy eyes. We need to focus on living more intentionally 
only hanging on to the things that help us to live our lives for God, which will free up our resources to help others of, others of those in our midst who need the help. That's it. Now we're on to the last of Comer's four practices, the practice of slowing down. Now in Comer's final chapter, he lists 20 ideas for slowing down his life. But as we wrap up, we'll focus on the notion of slowing our lives down to a more livable pace so that we can begin to bring God back into our lives and eventually make him the center of everything we do, which is pretty much what we promised we would do when we gave our lives to Jesus. So here we go. Ortberg defines slowing as cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. That is nuts, isn't it? I'm going to do things that make me go slower. This means we have to slow down our lives. And to slow down our lives, we have to slow down our bodies. And I hope you realize I am talking to me more than I'm talking to you, okay? But we can start doing this by giving ourselves more time to get to places, more time to do certain things. I am notorious for not doing that, for trying to do too much and not giving myself enough time to accomplish the things I need to accomplish. So to slow myself down, and maybe these will help you. I'm trying to leave for appointments earlier than I thought. Whoa, do I do that badly. And I'm trying to give myself more time to get from place to place so I'm not an aggressive driver and I'm not worried about the people driving wrong in front of me. I'm trying to wake up earlier. And I'm trying to not waste too much of my time once I'm up looking at news sources and articles and things that don't really help me in my quest to love God and to love people. And I'm also training myself to go slower in general. I've started parking my car in spots that are far away from the store. So I don't spend my energy and my time looking for spots close up. I don't get aggravated when I can't find a spot close. You can always find spots far away. See, by doing this, I can alleviate stress, the stress of rushing for a close-up spot, and I can add more steps to my day, and I can leave those close-up spots free for others who actually can't walk as far as I can walk. That's a slower, more other-centered life. That's a win-win, as far as I can tell. The suggestion here is that if we wish to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in our lives, we need to live intentionally. We need to take a beat. We need to slow down. And we need to enjoy the life on earth that God has given us. Because it's the only life on earth we get. Amen?